Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and I want to thank you for listening to this episode of my podcast. We hope to cover a lot of ground in this current episode. The U.S. gross domestic product shrank by 1.4% for the beginning of 2022. Does this spell doom for Democrats in the midterms and for Joe Biden's economic agenda? We'll also take a look at House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who got caught in a lie but with no consequence. Republicans in Ohio have made up a new bizarre trope about undocumented immigrants voting in elections and a lawsuit against the Postal Service over those trucks you see in cities and towns across America. Want to guess their gas mileage? But first, the economy. The nation's gross domestic product sank unexpectedly for the first three months of 2022. The percentage was 1.4, but it spells trouble on many fronts. There are fears a recession may be coming soon. Inflation continues to rise, and then there's the war in Ukraine. All these are likely factors in this decline, coming as it does after strong growth last year. Yet that's not the crux of the problem for Democratic elected officials. And of course, we know Democrats are a little slow to react to bad economic news. They wouldn't say that. They wouldn't necessarily admit it. But... Believe me, they're slow. Republicans are already looking to Velcro this dip to the party and its leader, President Joe Biden. One online site has already begun to call it Biden's recession. While he's not on the ballot this year, the balance of Congress is, and this dip does not bode well for the Democrats' ability to hold a majority in the House and the 50-50 current balance in the Senate. Then there's the global economy. Both China's and Europe's economies are stagnating, just like America's. And while it may not concern the International Monetary Fund, there's another factor, us. Consumers are reacting to inflation by buying less. Less of what? Why, less of just about everything. Belt tightening means product producers have more inventory on their hands than they thought they might during last year's boom in consumption. Can all these factors taken together create what economists call a perfect storm for the developed world? Maybe. But while the IMF largely concentrates on the developed world, maybe we need to ask ourselves how the economies of the developing world are doing. In Africa, for example, growth in many nations has been impacted by the war in Ukraine, just like the NATO countries, like the U.S., and like Western Europe. And of course, Monetary belt tightening in the U.S. also impacts Africa, as does climate change and the legacy of COVID-19. In South America, GDP estimates have also been revised to reflect some of these same factors, especially inflation. A common thread that's running through all these economic projections is the war in Ukraine. We hear daily reports of the fighting, the death of innocents, etc., Yet I'm not sure if most Americans are clear about what each side wants in order to end this conflict. First, the Russian side. They appear to have dropped their denazification rationale for starting the war in the first place. However, there are some things they seem to be saying are non-negotiable. They want a change in Ukraine's constitution such that they'd never be able to join NATO. They want Ukraine to recognize the two so-called breakaway regions of Donetsk and Lugansk 
as well as Russia's occupation of Crimea. The Kremlin says the war would end quickly if those demands are met. Now, we ought to be very clear about something. The Kremlin says a lot. The Kremlin makes certain promises under certain circumstances. They don't always stick to them. And this war in Ukraine is provided numerous examples of the Kremlin breaking its word. So when they say, oh, no, of course, if they agree to these demands, the war will be over. Take it with uh, just a little bit of grain of salt. The Ukrainians would have to trust them, for example, and on all these points. And they'd have trust in the Russians that the Russians have yet to earn. The Ukrainians want an immediate, immediate ceasefire and has declared it won't give up any of its territory to Russia. It's not clear if they mean the two Donbass regions. There is, on the Ukrainian side, an apparent willingness to give on NATO membership if the alliance and the U.S. are prepared to guarantee its security beyond any agreement they make with Russia. Also among Ukraine's priorities is the creation of humanitarian corridors to move more civilians in war-torn areas to safety. Trouble is, when Russia has opened up corridors, and of course they've said they would and they didn't always, but when they have, they have often led these corridors to Russia itself or Russian ally, Belarus. So the war continues. On its face, there appears to be little room to negotiate even a ceasefire. As things stand, the Russians will continue their war of attrition and thousands more will die. Those who do escape out of Ukraine will be less likely to return. As for those who say Russia is losing and Ukraine has a chance to pull off a victory, it may be a morale booster, but it's also highly unlikely. There must be third-party talks with Putin, no matter how distasteful that may be, to bring about a ceasefire. I'm not saying for a moment that Ukraine should give up any territory or sovereignty as a precondition for peace. However, NATO and the West could well negotiate the removal of some sanctions in return for a Russian pledge to end hostilities. Right now, the war is costing economies all over the world. Just ask the organizations who monitor such things. It's past time to prevail upon Putin to end this thing. After all, as we have said before, he started it. Coming up next, the strange case of Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican who saw truth, spoke to it, and then lied like a rug. This is The Intersection. You're at The Intersection with Mark Riley. It's what summer listening is all about. Welcome back to The Intersection. Calling House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy two-faced is an insult to two-faced people everywhere. In the immediate aftermath of the Capitol insurrection, we now know McCarthy spoke to colleagues about the danger some Republicans in the House represented with their inflammatory rhetoric. Specifically, he said the actions of certain GOP lawmakers held open the possibility of putting, quote, people in jeopardy, unquote. Despite this moment of truth-telling, 
by the Republican from California. He's managed to pivot away from it and still maintain the support of a majority of his caucus. The Washington Post did an article last week about a meeting of House Republicans. In it, according to the Post, McCarthy explained away his earlier comments by saying he was having a conversation about possible scenarios. This is the word salad Republicans are using as they try to gloss over possible culpability in the January 6th insurrection, while at the same time focusing on this year's midterm elections. They want very badly to retake the House, no surprise there, and cozying up to their titular capo, Donald Trump, is top of mind. The Post article doesn't reveal how these same House members dealt with the obvious lying McCarthy perpetrated in denying he said anything about his colleague's role in the Capitol riot. He did so right up until the actual recordings of what he said were made public. There's a reason for this. The party of Lincoln has become a gaggle of feckless toadies, and they think they can sell their snake oil to the American public. Sad to say, they may just pull it off. I've been critical in the past of the lack of focus on the nation's problems on the part of the Democrats. They seem to think they can win simply by saying, we're not them. They're losing the battle of ideas by just not having any, or at least not articulating them well enough to cut through the GOP fog of lies and garbage. The Republicans, if the Post piece is any indication, are coalescing around their fearless leader and those who enable him. We can examine, until the cows come home, why people lie with such impunity, whether it be McCarthy or right-wing ideologues from Matt Gates to Tucker Carlson. The latter two, by the way, don't appear to be as forgiving of McCarthy as are most of his colleagues. It called, it's revealing, that is, if the Post piece is to be believed, that McCarthy called Donald Trump three times in the wake of those damaging audio tapes. Their relationship is described as cordial. And at the root of it all, of course, is fundraising. The GOP will be hitting up its donor list for money to help defeat Democrats and retake the House and the Senate. Just like those folks who ponied up to Trump's Stop the Steal campaign, these same suckers, uh, sorry, donors, will find their money will be used to slander their opponents with lies and generally create the view that America is going to hell in a handbasket. How far will Republicans go in lying to win office? You're not going to believe what they're peddling in Ohio and other states. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Let's establish something right down front. Voter fraud is extremely rare in America. If you count actual convictions for it, you'd find what little that actually has resulted in people either being fined or going to jail is pretty evenly split along partisan political lines. Yet Republicans in states nowhere near the U.S. border with Mexico are alleging that undocumented immigrants are voting in large numbers in states like Ohio and Michigan. Of course, 
They have no evidence to back these claims up. Who needs evidence when you have red meat? One Ohio U.S. Senate candidate, Jane Timken, actually is running a TV ad showing her at a border wall alleging that Mexican drug cartels are responsible for increased drug problems in her home state. Now, some of that may be just a little bit true, but some might say it is straight up xenophobia. Yet, they go even further, does Jane Timken and her ilk, alleging without evidence that large numbers of undocumented immigrants are somehow voting in elections, swinging them to Democrats. Now, this is not new. Donald Trump tried to allege after the 2016 election that three to five million people voted illegally. He never substantiated that claim, but he doesn't need to. His tropes just keep on coming. Current and would-be polls are using the term invasion to describe the recent influx of migrants. And of course, tying the spike in migrations to Democrats and Joe Biden. The illegal voting thing should be rejected out front by anyone with a rudimentary knowledge of immigration and the electoral process. Because, as we all know, non-citizens are not allowed to vote in federal elections. We do know that don't we? It appears not to matter, nor does it matter, that trying to vote in U.S. elections could subject an immigrant to arrest and deportation, rather quickly, in fact. But what does that matter to people who have been subject to so much foolishness they've actually begun to believe it? And this is something we ought to pay much closer attention to. When people can come up with a ridiculous idea, see, because Here's the facts about undocumented immigrants. They tend to keep a low profile. That low profile does not include going to the ballot box illegally. In federal elections, you have to be a citizen in order to vote. So the idea that people, 3 million, 5 million, or whatever number of undocumented immigrants are flocking to the polls to vote for Democrats is absolutely ludicrous on its face. But see, the reason why these kind of tropes get traction is because there is so much disinformation in the political world. And the reason for that is very, very simple. It works. And finally, why would the Postal Service order more than 100,000 of those white vans we see on our streets when they only get 8.6 miles per gallon? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. As some of you may know, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the U.S. Postal Service. My father worked there for 40 years when it was just called the Post Office. I also worked there for nearly two years, many, many moons ago. That's why I was interested in an article that said 16 states, the District of Columbia, and climate activists are suing to block the purchase of 148,000 new postal vehicles over the next 10 years. Why, you may ask? Because those new trucks aren't much better for the environment than the ones they're replacing. 
They get an abysmal 8.6 miles to the gallon, even worse than a gas-guzzling Range Rover. The USPS had hoped the procurement would go smoothly. But then activists noticed that only 10% of the new vehicles would be powered by electricity. That's well below the benchmarks set by the Postal Service's main competitors. Now, it's important to note here that part of the rationale the USPS gave for replacing the old trucks, some of which have been around forever, with these new ones, is that they're trying to keep up with some of those same competitors. Not only that, organized labor has gotten involved, criticizing the vehicle deal struck with Oshkosh Defense for moving manufacture of these new vehicles to non-union South Carolina. This ought to be seen in a larger context, but first, a word or two from USPS spokesperson Kim Frum. She said, and I quote, the agency conducted a robust and thorough review and fully complied with all our obligations under environmental law. Hope she got paid by the word for that one. The larger context is this. How is this country supposed to be taken seriously when it comes to doing something about climate change, when it lets contracts like this? You know, it's not that these things happen in a vacuum. The rest of the world is looking at America for some form of leadership. And leadership is ordering 148,000 vehicles, trucks, to run the streets of America, getting 8.6 miles to the gallon while spewing out pollution? That's how America leads? You've got to be kidding me. You have absolutely got to be kidding me. Now, I don't know how much pollution these trucks will spew, but neither does anybody else, least of all, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. Now, I've never been a big fan of his, to be honest with you. I, I was really upset when he got appointed Postmaster General, and I would figure Joe Biden might find some reason to get rid of him, although it might be difficult. But in fairness, here is his word salad in response to criticism of the deal. Quote, the economics that my team has come up with are sound and support the agency's purchase plan. This is the math that we are going with. He's talking about estimates that gas would cost two nineteen a gallon at the time he procured these new vehicles. It now costs twice that. Not that that's a great thing, but that's the fact. And oh yeah, he did the required environmental impact study after making the deal. Let me say that again for emphasis for people who think that, you know, some folks are just playing around when it comes to dealing with climate change. Louis DeJoy did the environmental impact study of buying 148,000 gas-guzzling postal trucks after he made the deal to buy them, which would seem to me a bit of a violation of something. Nice work, USPS. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Long. Until we meet again, please stay well.